preaching through, as you can imagine, we're only in chapter 2, uh, the book of Exodus. Uh, this is our third in the series, and yeah, that's what we're looking at this morning. But you don't want to hear from me, you want to hear from God. So uh, we'll come before God in prayer, and we pray that we would hear um, God through his word this morning. Heavenly Father, it is a, a joy to be uh, called amongst the many children of God. For all who are believing and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, we uh, struggle so many times that we live in a broken world. That the nature of sin has um, corrupted pretty much every aspect of, cor- of creation and every life experience. Uh, but Lord, we, we know too that you have had a plan of salvation even before the, the foundation of the world. Uh, we thank you that as we can read through in your word, we see the, what your mighty acts of deliverance uh, and pointing to its, uh, the central peak of what Jesus has done to deliver us from uh, our slavery to sin and death and the devil. And Lord, we look forward to the, uh, the completion, the ultimate uh, pl- completion of your plan of redemption as your pe- people can gather around the very throne of God. We will struggle with sin and death no more. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that we would learn from it this morning, not just intellectually, uh, but Lord, that we would be engaging with the living God and by your spirit who has inspired the writers might uh, work within us, uh, that we might see the, the wondrous, glorious God that we serve and that we might be changed in our adoration of you, but also in how we respond to you and to one another. Asking Jesus' name, Amen. Back in November 2015, if you want to say, I don't know why 2015 it just sounds like ages ago. Maybe it's because I'm old and you know, getting a bit senile. But back in November 2015, I got a phone call from Ray. Ray's one of the elders here um, to say that somehow you guys had voted to approve the idea of me becoming the pastor of Eastgate. Now, it didn't start until March 2016. But the hardest thing in moving from a little country church in Victoria up to Toowoomba wasn't how are we going to go about all this packing up the house, the dog and the kids and all the stuff and moving up there and moving your family to a completely different state. That wasn't the thing I found the most difficult. The thing I found most difficult was that I was leaving a church that I loved dearly And at the time that I left, there was no sign of there being a definite replacement for a pastor for that church. And during the time since I've been here, three months had passed, there was still nothing. Six months passed, nothing. Nine months passed, nothing. And there gets to a point where you can start to feel a little bit guilty. Have I done the right thing? I know how hard it is sometimes to get pastors to country churches and think, have I let them down? Yet I was so certain that God had called and provided for us to be up here. It was probably 12 months had passed until it got to a point when the Mafra Community Church had appointed a new pastor who hasn't even begun yet. Uh, A young guy or younger family, probably similar age. When I say younger, I'm talking similar age to me because when I was in Mafra, I was the young guy. Now that I've come here, I'm the old guy. And they're starting shortly uh, from Adelaide and they're moving out to commence in that role. And I was challenged by the idea is, why was I worried about that? 
Do I honestly believe that that the all-powerful God is going to struggle to provide someone for a church if there is a vacancy and there is a need there? Now, as I said previously, this is our third week as we're going through the book of Exodus. To give you a little bit of an... get you up to speed as what we've covered so far, is that as the people had gone into Egypt, like it tells us very, very much in the beginning, there's only about 70 of them, but during their time in Egypt, they grew and multiplied greatly. So much so that, that Pharaoh began to be paranoid. He started to think, these guys, they've got no reason why they should be loyal to us Egyptians. What if one of our enemies comes against us? What if they side with them and actually turn against us? And so he comes up with a plan and thinks, I need to make sure they can't build an army, that they can't ever be a force who might oppose Egypt. Now his initial plan was, let's just make them work harder. So he puts them to work, starting to build some cities. But the scripture says they increased, they multiplied greatly. So they thought, maybe we just need to ramp it up a bit. Let's treat them ruthlessly like slaves. But what happens? They multiply, they increase greatly. So he steps up yet another notch and he says to the Hebrew midwives, if any of the Hebrews have children, if it's a female they can live, if it's a male you are to kill them. Yet we are told that the Hebrews midwives feared God. They wouldn't do what the highest power, human power in this world had requested of them. So in frustrations he turns to his own people and says, any male child born to the Hebrews, throw them in the Nile, leave them to die. Throughout every step along that way, we see the highest human king in the world at the time. You think no one can stand in his way. Yet the promises of God that the descendants of Abraham would multiply, and as he even promised specifically to Jacob, do not be afraid to go into Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. The plans of a mighty king of this world have nothing in comparison to the almighty God. But we were challenged as we looked at chapter 1. Now it would be very easy to look at all of the hard things going on and say, oh, where's God? Here we are in a different place. They're treating us like slavery. I thought my God loved me. Or we could look at it in that positive light. God was sustaining them. God was sustaining the life of these male children, the Hebrew midwives, because they feared God protected those lives. Or they could see it as God promised that we would be fruitful in this land and even when the king and all of his plans are against those plans, God is faithful there, but being fruitful, they are multiplying, they're seeing the promises of God unfolding. Now last week we looked at the first ten verses of chapter 2, which began with the birth of a male Hebrew child. Born into a setting where the king has said all male Hebrew boys are to be killed, thrown in the Nile. Yet his mother, Jochebed, we're told in Hebrews that because she did not fear the command of the king, she hid her child for three months. Then after a period of three months comes the conclusion she can hide him no longer. That would be a desperate thing to do as a mother, wouldn't it? To think that There's a king who wants your child dead. After three months, you think you've got him covered. And then she decides, she makes a little woven basket out of papyrus, puts it in tarrant pitch, and puts it into the Nile River. She puts her one and only child 
into the place, not one and only child, that's wrong, one of her child, um, into the place that had been destined by the king to be for the destruction of Hebrew boys. But what we also see in that passage was that Moses' sister, Miriam, see, he wasn't the only child, Pharaoh's daughter comes along and thinks, oh no, worst case scenario, the daughter of the one who says kill these kids. Yet rather than this being a negative part of the story, she sees this child, knows it's one of the Hebrew boys, and she has compassion upon him. And Miriam, the sister, quickly comes on the scene and says, would you want me to get one of the Hebrew midwives to look after this kid? And she knows exactly she's just taking this kid back to mum. And in a setting where the royal command was for the death of this child, his daughter not only gives blessing from within Pharaoh's household for this child to go back and live with its mother, but even financially supports it. Jochebed trusted Moses, even in the place that seemed the most ridiculous place to put a child, in the place that was destined to be for the death and destruction of many. And we saw the comparison how that word translated basket, the only other time it's used in the Bible is speaking of Moses' ark. When God placed Moses in an ark where that was the place where God was rescuing and saving Moses and his family into the waters of which were the same place that was for the destruction of many. Many times we've spoken of Exodus being the gospel of the Old Testament. At the very core and heart of it is a God who saves the people out of slavery, out of Egypt. And as you go throughout the Old Testament, you see God constantly reminding you, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. But there's other ways in which you can compare the book of Exodus to the Gospels, particularly with regards to Matthew and Luke, where they begin with the the birth of of the deliverer of the Saviour. But then there's a big gap between the public ministry that goes on. In fact, chapters 1 and 2 of Exodus probably cover a period of at least 300 years. Like there's a little rough reference to the the time when um, um, Jacob's descendants enter into the land. Then you get up and you've got slavery, you've got Moses born. It's like 40 years till some of the stuff that we're looking at today. Then he's 40 years on top of that in the Midianites until he's actually 80 come the time that um, the burning bush that we look at in chapter 3. But even before we get to next week, where we see God calls him to raise him up to be the deliverer of the people, we see Moses and his compassion for his fellow Israelites, even if his actions are a little bit misguided. Today our structure, looking at verses 11 to 14, we're going to see Moses with a good motive to, to redeem and to save, not so good method. Verses 15 to 20, you see Moses, the one whose God has been preserving and protecting becomes an outsider. And lastly, in verses 23 to 25, how God never forgets his promises. So the scene begins. Here's Moses, who's, who's grown up in Pharaoh's court, who's received all of the education within the, the Egyptian system. It's worth reading Acts chapter 7 in, in Stephen, Stephen's great speech there because he covers a lot of this material that's addressed here in Exodus chapter 2. And one of the things he speaks about, the education that Moses received. He would have received the highest possible education at the time, with a very strong slant towards the greatness of Egypt. But part of that education also would have had a very low view upon slaves. 
Like there's surviving historical material that describes the slaves at those times as being the living dead or as donkeys or as various other um, terms such as that. But in that setting, it says, one day when Moses had grown up, and again we know from Exodus chapter 7, this ex- Moses is actually aged, aged 40 at this point in time, he went out to his people. He looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people I'll just get that back where it's supposed to be so even though he's raised up by all intents and purposes on a legal perspective he is Egyptian genetically he's an Israelite but despite all of the privileges that he has because of being raised in Pharaoh's household he still identifies very deeply, these are my people. And he goes out to see the plight of his people. Now, he's probably heard a lot about what they're up to, but he goes out to see it for himself. But he doesn't just go to check it out so he can say, oh, yeah, I've seen it with my eyes. The word you have there is sees, talks about to, to see and also to be moved by what you see. We see him greatly moved by the burdens of his own people. Now, Egyptian slavery was always tough. The concept of the Egypt beating a slave is not a, not a foreign concept. It was probably a very common concept. But for Moses to go out and see his own flesh and blood being mistreated in that way deeply moved him. Even though he'd been brought up with an education that's teaching highly the supremacy of Egypt and how lowly the, the servants are to be considered the slaves, his natural desire was to deliver, was to save Even though God hasn't yet appointed him to be a deliverer of the people, he was compelled to act. Wisely or not, we'll find out. He looked this way and that way, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now, some are a little bit divided. Did Moses actually do the right thing in his circumstances? He's come along, his fellow countrymen are being abused by the Egyptians. Should he have stepped in and done something? He's seen, he's been moved by the injustice. Is that the right way to go, violence? I think Moses' own conscience, as well as the outcome, gives a pretty clear indication of that. It says, he looked this way and he looked that way. Now, I, I see that happen quite a bit in my house. Miller's two and a half years old. If she's going to grab hold of something she shouldn't have, she looks this way and she looks that way to see whether she get it, and then she tends to disappear because she doesn't want people to see that she's got something she shouldn't have. I see it with our dog. Quite often Miller would have her toys on the quite a low-lying coffee table. The dog looks this way, looks that way, and if she thinks she can eat it no one's eating, no one's seeing it, she's into it. His conscience testifies pretty clearly against it. Now we don't know whether or not Moses actually intended to kill the guy. It just says that he struck him and we know what actually did happen. But it's also pretty convenient because with all the sand around, it's pretty easy to bury. You don't even need a shovel. A little bit inconvenient. Someone else takes their kids out to build sandcastles a bit later on when they go digging into it. But the very act that he's looking this way and that and then hiding the body shows not only his conscience regarding what he's doing, but I think as part of him thinks the consequences, if people find out about this, is not going to be good. Now, initially he seems to get away with things or so he thinks. 
But you must think when he's lying in bed at that night, he's probably wondering, what if people do find out? I mean, surely at some point people are going to realise someone's gone missing. Whether it's because he's so disturbed by what he's seen by the treatment of his people or not, tells us the next day he goes out again. And behold, two Hebrews were struggling with, with one another. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? So this time he's gone out. It's not the Egyptians who's mistreating his own people. It's happening in-house. Like it's bad enough to have the nation who by nature are oppressing you doing that type of thing. But when your own flesh and blood are doing it to one another. And he says, why are you doing this? Why do you strike your companion? Now Moses seems to get the impression that everyone's going to think of him as a bit of a hero. Again, what Stephen has to say in Acts chapter 9 is good in terms of it gives you extra information. He talks about specifically this occasion when, when Moses went out to see his people and he saw them um, struggling with one another. This, this gives us a little bit of extra insight as to what Moses had in mind. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hands. So he thought by the way he was interacting both with the Egyptian and with the, the Hebrews, they were going to think, Ripper, here's our deliverer, here he's come. But they didn't understand. Rather than welcoming Moses as a deliverer, they don't seem to want anything to do with him. Like, who are you telling us how to do these things? said, who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill us like you did the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. So these people that Moses cared deeply for didn't care in the least for him. Like, who are you to tell us what to do? I mean, they're probably, if they know exactly who he is and where he's come from, they're probably not that excited. There they are, ruthlessly being treated like slaves while he's getting all the royal treatment, all the special perks of their being in Pharaoh's household. But not only that, there's like, who are you to tell us how we should relate to another one? We saw what you did yesterday. You decked a, you didn't just hit him, you killed him and buried him in the sand. Now the everyday people, even the everyday servant people understand something. If you're going to presume to be any form of leader and you're going to call people to do particular things, if you are teaching and presenting those as being valuable things worth emulating, then it kind of helps that you actually do the same things. What are you telling us to do such a thing when you don't even live by it yourself? Clearly you don't value it. It's the same thing in terms of when we come together and it's time we're looking at God's word together and there's a sermon. The sermon is not for everyone on this side of the pulpit. The sermon is as we engage with God's word that we might see the glory of God, that our hearts might be changed for him and that we might respond to him, that we might be corrected by the word, we might be changed by the word. Just as much on that side and on this side. It's to correct me, it's to change me. It's to change all of us. And there's no point in me preaching or calling us to something it calls me to that same very high standard that it calls every single one of us. You cannot call people to live in a way that you don't do yourself. And I think one of the big hindrances we have as we desire to call people to follow Jesus Christ is they look at our life and say, you don't look like you're doing it. I see all these things where I know what you're supposed to do as a follower of Jesus Christ and you don't seem interested. 
So poor old Moses who thinks, oh yeah, the people are going to love this, that God's giving them salvation by his hands. They think, you've got no credibility whatsoever. Who are you to come to us? Not only has he got no respect of the people, but now there's a fear. He's like, well, if these guys know about it, who else knows? And if you think, who's the last person Moses would want to find out that he's killed one of the the Egyptian slave drivers and particularly for the protection of the slaves and, and shown that he's siding with them, he knows. Pharaoh finds out about it. And as we look at verses 15 to 22, Moses, the one who God's been protecting all this way along, now he's going to become the outsider, rejected by his own people, but also rejected and cast out by the Egyptians. When Pharaoh hears about it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. As far as someone who was by ethnicity an Israelite, he had it better than any single other person in the land. They're all out being treated ruthlessly like slaves. God has protected him. He's ended up in the royal household. He's getting all the education, all the perks of living in Egypt and being within Pharaoh's household. Yet out of his deep love for his people, he goes out with good intentions, very poorly executed. (laughs) Yes, pardon the pun on that one. That wasn't intended. And ends up not only being rejected by the people he hoped that he'd be showing care for, but now loses everything by way of the perks of being associated with Egypt. Pharaoh wants him dead, just like he did even when he was a little child. We see some comparisons with Jesus too. Who who sought so deeply to win the salvation of a people who were lost and oppressed. It's just as Moses was came to his own people and willingly surrendered all of the perks of where he was at to represent and to deliver a people, so also Jesus surrendered all the glories of heaven to enter into our world into all of the struggles and hardship of living as a, in this world in order to identify with, be a substitute and to deliver a people for himself. Now Moses is starting to experience what it means to be an outsider. And I think that's part of God's part, plan of preparation. Like he's living, he's had all of the perks. But as he has come to be a deliverer of an oppressed people, of of people who are on the outside, God is giving him something of the experience of the people for whom he will represent. Now where he goes exactly is unknown because Midian's not a place, it's a people group. And they were a nomadic people group who were moving around, not grey nomads in their their Winnebago's, but moving around as they did. Most of believe it's sort of around the Sinai Peninsula area, sort of between Egypt, Israel type area where your little Google mappy dotty thing is there. Now you might think, who are these weirdos? Who are these Midianites? Most likely they still held to the same faith of the God of Abraham because the Midianites were descended from Abraham. Abraham's first wife, Sarah, did die at some point and Abraham took a second wife, Keturah, and to, to, to Abraham, she bore Zimran, Jokshan, Midan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. 
So the Midianites were descended from Abraham uh, via his second wife. Also interesting context to to bring it together. In Genesis 25, it's actually the Midianite traders who bring Joseph as a slave into Egypt. And throughout most of the Old Testament scriptures, the Midianites are actually um, hostile and enemies towards the Israelites. But they're not that keen on Egypt either. So now that a single Israelite might be coming into their territory on the run from Egypt, they're probably actually quite welcoming of him. Now Moses sits by a well where seven daughters of the priests come to draw water for their flock. And once again, Moses sees injustice for himself. The shepherds, presumably Egyptian, come and drive the flock away and they water their own flocks. The way it's worded could even give the impression that they hang back for a little bit, wait till the women do the hard work of drawing the water out of the well, then drive their animals away and water their own animals and say, thank you ladies, off you go. How's Moses going to go this this time as he learnt something? First time he killed someone, buried him in the sand. Second time he had a good crack but didn't have the integrity to follow through. This time the shepherds came and drove them away but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. Not only does Moses act to protect the people, but he goes the extra mile, he draws the water, and he waters their flock. He's starting to learn what it means to be a deliverer and to do so honourably and to do so with justice. But this doesn't seem to be a, a strange or unfamiliar scenario. It seems these women have this as a regular experience when they go out, people make things difficult for them because when they get home to their father, who is the priest of the Midianites, um, Ruah or Jethro, the name seems to get used interchangeably, so we'll see you next week. He's surprised, like, how come you ladies are home so early? And they recount what has gone on. Now, they're presumed that Moses was an Egyptian, whether it's his clothes, who knows what it was. He came, delivered us away from the shepherds, he drew the water and he watered our flock for us. Now, regardless of whatever feelings um, Jethro may have had for the Egyptians, he's quite fond of the fact that some guy has acted on behalf of his seven daughters, not only to protect them, but to provide in such a way that he almost rebukes them, saying, well, where is he? Why didn't you bring him home? And evidently, the, the daughters go out, they find Moses and bring him back. But the rewards go much better than just coming home and having a meal. Brings him back, has a meal... Moses lives there. He's got somewhere to live. He goes even further. He gets one of the one of the daughters for himself, Zipporah. And then as God has promised that through, through Abraham's descendants they would multiply and be fruitfully and that exactly still continues to take place. He has two, child, two children to Zipporah but specifically because two speaks of the first one, Gershom. A word which means I have been, past tense, a sojourner in a foreign land. A reminder that he once was in a foreign land amongst Egypt, but God has been his deliverer. Once again, there's two ways you could respond to this situation. You could say, where's God? Moses has done his effort to try and deliver people, yet he's been rejected by those people, and now he's outside even of where he was. Or the positive way to look at it and think, 
Look how God has provided once again to protect him. Even when he's on the run again for his own life, he's been given a family, a home. He's been fruitful, multiplying, fulfilling those promises to his forefather Abraham. And look how God is preparing this deliverer to experience something of this this separation by his own people to come and raise him up to be their deliverer. God is never inactive. Just because he doesn't work by our methods or our time frames, God is never inactive. Matter of fact, the final three verses show us and remind us that our God never forgets his promises. Told from Acts chapter 7, it took 40 years till Moses goes out to see his own people. And it's another 40 years uh, before he um, comes to the burning bush in chapter 3. And after 40 years waiting to go see his people, goes, kills the slave driver, has to flee from Egypt. The king wants him dead. You can imagine how people would think, God's not active. What about all these things that God's supposed to have promised us? Where, where is God's goodness? We struggle with that, every one of us. Most of us struggle when, when we're in a deep situation and it takes more than 40 days for God to do something. What about 40 years? Who would patiently wait on God for fulfilment of his promises for 40 years? I can't say anyone's got their hand up saying, yeah, that's my ultimate time frame, 40 years ripper. Let's go for that one. I'll, I'll add it to my prayer list. And even though God's foretold that everything that their experience was going to happen doesn't make it easier, does it? Like there's no surprises about them going into the land of Egypt. Read back in, in Genesis 15, which incidentally is part of the passage where God makes a covenant with Abraham This is in that same setting. The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they'll be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on that nation they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So this has already been foretold. They're going to be 400 years in Egypt. Again, not your ultimate uh, time frame in terms of your prayer life. But while we know in everything that we face, God has got all things in control, that doesn't mean we don't actually get stressed. It doesn't mean we don't get anxious about it. I mean, if you want to make for an example, think about Jesus. When he's there in the Garden of Gethsemane, he knows what God's plan is. He knows how it's going to work. It doesn't mean he thought, oh, Ripper, this is, this is easy. He was greatly stressed in that situation, not because he didn't trust God. But in the space of three verses... We see how God moves and shows that he doesn't forget his promises. Firstly, for Moses in verse 23, it tells us that now the king died. Now that the king who wants his very life is dead, Moses can return back into Egypt. But when we look at the people, verse 23, they groaned, they cried out to God. They cry out to God because they knew for certain they needed a deliverer. They knew he was their deliverer. They knew his promises. Thank God, when are you going to do those things you've promised to us? Now you see that throughout the Psalms. Now the Psalmist, how long, O Lord, when will you act? When will you deliver me? But pretty much all of those Psalms that sort of begin in that way, they will say, but I will trust in the Lord. Don't know what the time frame is. God, I wish it's a whole lot quicker. But I will trust. We were looking this morning in, our, in the prayer meeting at Psalm 116 and in verse 10 it said something along the lines of 
I will believe even when I say I'm being afflicted. Now He came to that conclusion, because I've seen God deliver in so many situations in the past, I'm going to believe in the middle of even the difficult of things because I've known he's a God who delivers on his promises regardless of the time frame. But these cries are heard and they're responded to, even if the response is not always done in such a visible way that they can tangibly see it. God hears their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. The basis of what happens from here on in is that God remembered his covenant. Now when you read these words, God remembered, and they come up a lot in the Old Testament, don't think that God's like Stephen and think, oh yeah, I forgot about that one, I completely dropped the ball, thanks for bringing it to my attention. It's not so he's forgotten something and it's come back into his mind again. Whenever you see that expression, and God remembered, is a sign that at this junction in time, God decisively decides to act to fulfill those things. And particularly it says, he remembered or decided to act decisively regarding the promises made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Now remember, as we look just a short moment ago, back in Genesis 15, where God makes that covenant with Abraham, this idea that they would be in a foreign land for 400 years and that God would judge that land and bring them out of it was part of that covenant, part of those promises. This God, he says, he has seen and he knows them. He sees and knows everything and he knows us deeply and intimately. He knows what we need. And likewise, when we come to God in prayer, we do so knowing he sees every little thing. He knows us deeply. He knows what we need. Doesn't always respond to the timing or the way that we think it needs to be done, but always according to his good timing and always for his glory. And we'll see a glimpse of that next week as we look at chapter 3 in the burning bush. But the delivery from Egypt is only one act where God has remembered that covenant to Abraham. Easy to understand in Exodus, the people could see their desperate need for a deliverer. They could see they're in slavery. We need to get someone to deliver us out of this. And they cry out. But this covenant that God remembered wasn't just to deliver just an ethnic people. That wasn't just the fullness of it. It's a covenant that included wording saying, through your offspring all nations will be blessed. Now, in sort of simple reading by English standards, you might think, oh, yeah, it's just through uh, the natural physical descendants of, of Abraham. But Paul, very strong in his Hebrew roots, explains what that means in Galatians 3.16. Now, the promises that made to Abraham and to his offspring does not say and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. So the one through whom the blessing to all nations would come was not just through all the genetic offspring of Abraham, but specifically to one seed, to one offspring, who is Christ. Who would not just be a deliverer of one ethnic group, but a deliverer of the world. Now for the ancient Israelites, the need for a deliverer is obvious. When you're treating ruthlessly day in, day out, you're crying out, you know your need. But today our need may not be so visibly apparent. As as you know, when you're talking to people about your faith, you'll come across people who think you are an idiot for believing what you believe. 
Like, like, how stupid could you be to believe that there's some, some God could create every single thing that exists in this world? Apparently it makes more sense to believe that nothing created everything to find the laws of biogenesis, that dead things become living things. But we shouldn't be alarmed when people think we're stupid. The Bible tells us that that is the nature of the gospel. It will be met with two different responses. In Romans chapter 1, where it sort of gives a bit of an indication of the gospel which has been made clearly known so it can be clearly perceived by all, it says, although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. The foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So it says, all understand that there is a God, but the truth of that implication there is a God who created us in all things is inconvenient, particularly if you want to just do whatever you want to do. So it doesn't just say, and they forget about God, they exchange the truth for a lie because if you embrace the truth that there is a God who's created all things, then that means we all belong to him, we're his. And that if we belong to him, if, we, if our life and our breath and everything comes from him, if he's sustaining us in our world minute after minute, then it's right that we give him glory and honour and thanks. It's also equally right that if he's good as he claims to be, that if we rebel against him, if he, if he is good, he must respond to that. He must punish it. Because it's that rebellion that leads to sin as we be selfish, that we do all these wicked things we see around, the, around in the world are the result of that, as people just going after doing what pleases themselves. Just like Moses. In Hebrews chapter 11 says, Moses chose to turn his back on the fleeting pleasures of sin, like he had all these things available to him in Egypt, but he rather decided with the oppressed people of his own people for the glory of the sake of enduring the shame of Christ. He thought it was far greater to identify with his people, to deliver them, even at great cost to himself. And Notice there in Hebrews, the comparison is made, says that he took on the insult of Christ, that there is that symbolism that is there. Now, if that happened in today's world, that someone who's brought up in a royal household would willingly side with the, the complete underdogs, willingly lay all that aside to be their deliverer, that would be in the news everywhere. Now, that would be, that'd be the sort of stuff that would make big Hollywood films and people would be crying over it. Well, not maybe me because I'm not that particularly an emotional kind of person, but pretend I am. But then think of an even far greater example. That the Son of God, the Almighty God, left all the treasures of heaven where there, were, where there was no sin, there was no strung, no sin, no struggles, enters into the creation that had been corrupted by sin to experience all of the struggles of mankind, to be mistreated the one who deserves more honour than anyone else, to be rejected by his own people, but willingly comes to identify with, to deliver and to save a sinful people, to bear our punishment on our behalf. What he did on the cross wasn't an accident, it was part of the plan. 
The consequences for our rebellion against him was death, yet he came and he died that death in our part so we do not have to. The writer of Hebrews in 12.2 says, For the joy set before him endured the cross. That's the saving nature of our God. It is a joy even to go through something so cruel and shameful as dying on a Roman cross because of what it would achieve to save a people from the natural consequences of their sin. Now in our community group on Monday night, we've started a study on 1 Corinthians and we've just gone through the first couple of chapters. And we were reminded in the end of chapter 1 that the good news always has two responses. For some people, it seems like absolute foolishness. But for those who are being saved, it is the absolute power of God. And so we should never be surprised when we see either of those responses. Now, sometimes we, we think, oh, yeah, we expect everyone to reject it, and we get, like, shocked if God actually uses the gospel to save people. We need to remember, it has both responses. Don't be offended when people get it, think you're an idiot. But also, don't be surprised when the powerful God actually does save a people for himself. If what you're hearing this morning is new to you or it doesn't quite make sense, but you sense there's something in this message that, that there's God, that Jesus has entered the pleasures and all the joys of heaven to enter in our world to, to side with an oppressed people to save them from their sins, that we can have an eternity with him, and you want to know something about it, then ask someone you know here who does know Jesus. If you want to know, talk about it more, we'd love to chat to you. Hang around at lunch, have a chat, whatever. This is too important to miss it. That the creator who has given everything in this creation, who gives us our life and breath and everything, willingly entered into this world, suffered rejection by his own people to secure our salvation. That he would bear our shame and our guilt so that we don't have to. And we're promised if we repent, that is if we realize that he's worthy of all of our honor and praise and thanks, yet we haven't because we've just wanted to do what we want to do. And we say, sorry, God, I haven't honored you the way I deserve. And I thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die and take my punishment on my behalf. And because you believed he's worthy, I only now want to live for him as your rightful ruler. We will never be ashamed before him. Again, the writer of Hebrews says, for speaking of Jesus, he who sanctifies and those who sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Now, Moses, remember, Moses went out to, to see his brothers. Jesus is not ashamed to call those who are his, his brothers. Or Romans speaks of it, that we are co-heirs with Christ. That is the nature of what we have inherited in our salvation. Just as the Israelites might have asked the question, where is God? Yet God is faithful to his promises and he's bringing them to their fruition. We live in a world that is corrupted by sin. Lots of times we think, where is God? God is working out his purposes. He is faithful to all of his promises. He can be trusted upon. Our God never forgets his promises. They can be depended upon both now in our present situation But even more exciting, he can be dependent upon for what he's promised for our future. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for what you had done to both protect, prepare, and eventually um, use Moses to be a deliverer of the Israelite people out of slavery. 
But we are so much more thankful for the, for the greater thing which has direct impact for every single one of us then. That you have sent your son into the world to be the saviour of all mankind for all who would call upon and trust upon him. We know that we didn't deserve it. We don't deserve your grace. And just as uh, the Israelites had slavery uh, pushed upon them, not because anything they did, but just because uh, that was what happened to them. But you are a gracious and compassionate God who hears the groans and the cries of your people who cry out to you. And to those who do cry out to you, you willingly provide for their salvation. We thank you that we do have an almighty God. We thank you that you have a plan, not just for now, but for the future. And we thank you that all of your promises are steadfast and unchangeable. We thank you that you are one whom we can trust, of whom we can say, I will trust in you even in the midst of our hardship. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.